0: Welcome to the May 12, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. In today's podcast, we'll discuss an undescribed role for NOx2 in maintaining lung homeostasis through suppression of alveolar macrophage activation. We'll also cover results of a phase three randomized trial that compares the safety and efficacy of hydroxyurea and PEG interferon alpha-2A in patients with high-risk polycythemia vera and essential thrombocythemia, or PV and ET, respectively. Finally, we'll go more in-depth on the emerging treatment landscape for PV and the limits of current clinical trial endpoints. Let's start with the article entitled, Macrophage NOx-2 NADPH oxidase maintains alveolar homeostasis in mice, by Surav Bhattacharya and Mary Dinauer from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, and colleagues. The phagocyte NADPH oxidase 2, or NOx-2, plays an important role in the killing of pathogens and regulation of the immune system. Of note, inherited defects in the NOx2 enzyme complex lead to chronic granulomatous disease, or CGD, which is characterized by severe infections and inflammatory disorders that often involve the lung. Many young adult patients with CGD experience chronic lung disease that in some cases may reflect a non-infectious inflammatory response. Furthermore, sterile lung inflammation has been observed in CGD mouse models, These observations in mice and humans raise the question of whether NOx2 modulates immune responses in the lungs to maintain homeostasis. In their article, Bhattacharya, Dinauer, and colleagues investigate the cell-intrinsic role of NOx2 in alveolar macrophages. In the lungs, the alveolar macrophage is the predominant immune cell type, accounting for about 95% of airway leukocytes. Although alveolar macrophages are the first line of defense against pollutants and pathogens, limiting their activation is important because of our constant exposure to inhaled materials. The in vivo and ex vivo analyses described in this article are focused on mice with deletions of NOx2 that were either global or restricted by cell type. Spontaneous development of lung inflammation was noted in mice with global deletion of NOx2. These changes were independent of host or environmental microbes. This was not apparent at 4 weeks after birth, but was clear at 12 weeks, establishing a timeline for the development of an inflammatory alveolar state in these mice. Also between 4 and 12 weeks of age, the CGD mice developed a pro-inflammatory CD11B high subset of alveolar macrophages, representing about 40% of the total the epigenetic and transcriptional profiles of the CD11B high alveolar macrophages reflected immune activation as compared to wild-type alveolar macrophages. According to the investigators, this additional population of CD11B high cells could be derived from either resident alveolar macrophages or from the bone marrow, but was not associated with increased apoptosis or turnover of alveolar macrophages. The presence of the CD11B-high cells in CGD mice correlated with increased numbers of alveolar neutrophils and pro-inflammatory cytokines, consistent with dysregulation of alveolar homeostasis. Interestingly, the preferential deletion of NOX2 in macrophages was sufficient to induce the CD11B-high inflammatory lung phenotype and the related pro-inflammatory sequelae. In mice with macrophages that lacked NOX2 enzyme activity, but neutrophils with partial or near-normal NOX2 activity, inflammatory changes developed in the lungs, similar to what had occurred in the CGD mice. The investigators also showed that NOX2 limited activation of alveolar macrophages to ligands for TLR2 and TLR4 ex vivo alveolar macrophages lacking NOX2 had increased cytokine responses to TLR2 and TLR4 stimulation. By contrast, peritoneal macrophages did not have an increased response to TLR agonists. In their accompanying commentary, Wenjuan Zhang and Paul Kubis of the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada, said these investigations have made a notable contribution to the understanding of the pulmonary manifestations of CGD. They cite how the altered alveolar macrophage phenotype, induced by absence of NOX2, results in spontaneous development of non-infectious inflammation of the lung. However, the source of these CD11B-high alveolar macrophages found within the CGD mouse lung remains to be elucidated, either monocyte-derived or tissue-resident macrophages could be contributing to this population. According to Zhang and Cubis, a future monocyte lineage tracing experiment could reveal whether it is resident or monocyte-derived macrophages that are being maladaptively trained in the absence of NOx2. They also believe it would be interesting to examine the CGD mouse in the wild, in contrast to germ-free experimental conditions, as exposure to fungal, bacterial, and viral pathogens could further exacerbate the inflammatory phenotype observed in this study. Altogether, the investigations by Bhattacharya, Dinauer, and co-authors demonstrate that NOX2 is essential for modulating alveolar macrophage responses. The absence of NOX2 in alveolar macrophages results in their pro-inflammatory remodeling and dysregulation of alveolar homeostasis. This new information may help clarify the pathogenesis of chronic lung inflammation related to CGD and may be useful for the development of treatments that promote protective lung immune responses. We next discuss the article, A Randomized Phase 3 Trial of Interferon Alpha versus Hydroxyurea in Polycythemia Vera and Essential Thrombocythemia by John Mascarinas of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York and colleagues. This randomized Phase three trial of the Myeloproliferative Disorders Research Consortium, named MPDRC-112, was conducted at 24 sites in North America and Europe. This study directly addresses an important open question. That is, whether pegylated interferon-alpha-2a or hydroxyurea is a superior agent in the treatment of patients with high-risk PV and ET. This trial included 168 patients with therapy-naive, high-risk PV or ET, randomized one-to-one to to receive hydroxyurea or PEG interferon alpha-2A. 87 patients had PV and 81 had ET. Most patients had high-risk disease, Based on the traditional definition, that is to say, age of 60 years or older, and or a history of thrombosis. Overall, 82% of PV patients and 75% of ET patients were high risk by these criteria. JAK2V617F was the most common MPN driver mutation, occurring in 91% of patients. Patients were treated for a median of 81 weeks. The primary endpoint of the trial was the rate of complete response, or CR, at 12 months. In line with the 2013 consensus response criteria, CR was defined as a platelet count of less than 400,000, hematocrit of less than 45% without phlebotomy for PV patients only, white blood cell count of less than 10,000, resolution of splenomegaly, and resolution of disease-related symptoms including microvascular disturbances, headache, and pruritus. The bottom line is that there was no significant difference detected in this endpoint at 12 months. The CR rate at 12 months was 37% for hydroxyurea and 35% for PEG interferon alpha-2a, with a p-value of 0.80. Likewise, the overall response rate at 12 months was not significantly different, at 70% for hydroxyurea and 78% for PEG interferon. However, PEG interferon may have been more effective in correcting blood counts among PV patients, according to investigators. The proportion of PV patients achieving hematocrit control without phlebotomy at 12 months was 65% for those receiving PEG interferon versus only 43% for those receiving hydroxyurea, a finding with a p-value of 0.04. Another finding of interest that appeared to favor PEG interferon was the median change in JAK2V617F variant allele fraction, which was negative 10.7% for PEG interferon-treated patients, but just negative 5.3% for hydroxyurea-treated patients. Furthermore, the median JAK2V617F variant allele fraction consistently decreased from baseline through month 24 in the PEG interferon arm. By contrast, the variant allele fraction increased in the hydroxyurea arm after month twelve, on the positive side of the balance sheet for hydroxyurea, a finding that investigators did not anticipate, histological responses were more frequent in the hydroxyurea-treated patients as compared to the peg interferon patients. The rate of bone marrow histopathologic response was 23% versus 5% for hydroxyurea and peg interferon-treated patients, respectively, with a p value of 0.01. Investigators didn't expect that histopathologic response would be more common in the hydroxyurea arm, since PEG interferon is thought to act at the level of the mutated MPN stem cell. However, as the authors comment, it is possible that hydroxyurea dose-related myelosuppression accounts for the higher histological response rate. In patients with PV and ET, thrombosis is an ever-present concern. In this study, however, The number of thrombotic events were small, limiting the ability of investigators to detect any differences between the two treatment arms of hydroxyurea and PEG interferon. Looking beyond 12 months of treatment, statistically significant differences in CR rates between the two drugs did not emerge after 24 and 36 months of follow-up. Over time, the rates of thrombosis and progression of disease, including evolution to myelofibrosis and acute myeloid leukemia, Were small and did not differ between the two agents. Regarding safety, grade 3 to 4 treatment emergent adverse events were more common with PEG interferon versus hydroxyurea. The rate of grade 3 or higher adverse events was 46% for PEG interferon and 28% for hydroxyurea. Grade 1 to 2 depression was seen in 15% of patients in the PEG interferon arm and 3% of patients in the hydroxyurea arm. Overall, PEG-interferon-related adverse events were common and included flu-like symptoms, injection site reactions, and peripheral neuropathy. Based on these results, Mascarinas and colleagues concluded that for patients with PV and ET, both hydroxyurea and PEG-interferon-alpha-2a were effective in normalizing blood counts and that the number of thrombotic events were low. They said the decision to choose one of these agents over the other has to be a personalized one. But the therapeutic armamentarium is broader than just hydroxyurea and PEG interferon. How do these findings fit into the bigger picture? To go more in-depth on this topic, let's review a related perspective article by Jason Gottlieb of Stanford Cancer Institute in Stanford, California. Titled Treatment and Clinical Endpoints in Polycythemia Vera Seeking the Best Obtainable Version of the Truth. The MPD RC112 Randomized Trial provides an opportunity to take stock of the current treatment landscape, Gottlieb says in his piece, which also appears in the current issue of Blood. This study aims to tackle the ongoing debate over the safety and efficacy of hydroxyurea versus interferon alpha in patients with high risk disease. In these debates, hydroxyurea is considered to have a more superficial impact on blood counts, with mixed evidence regarding its impact on hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells, and no evidence to suggest it is a disease-modifying therapy. Furthermore, concerns persist about the potential for hydroxyurea to increase the risk of leukemic transformation in these diseases, whose arc already bends toward myelofibrosis and AML, although this has not been borne out in several contemporary studies. By contrast, interferon therapy has attracted attention due to its ability to reduce the JAK2V617F allele burden in patients with PV and ET. Therefore, it may have the potential for impacting disease natural history, for example, progression-free and overall survival. However, higher level evidence for this has not yet been demonstrated. If that's the rose of Interferon, then the thorn is its reputation for poor tolerability due to the aforementioned adverse effects and treatment discontinuation rates ranging from 15 to 30% in phase 1 and 2 studies. While pegylation improves the toxicity profile of Interferon, physicians and patients remain hesitant about using the drug due to lingering tolerability concerns. The randomized MPDRC 112 study Provide some new data to inform this debate, but the results are difficult to interpret because of a sponsor decision to withdraw the supply of PEG interferon. As a result, target enrollment was not reached, which in turn impacted the study's statistical power and the potential conclusions that could be drawn. Nevertheless, Gottlieb said, a reasonable conclusion is that hydroxyurea and PEG interferon elicited similar shorter term control of blood counts in this study. Comparisons are inevitable between the MPD-RC112 study of PEG-interferon-alpha-2A and contemporaneous studies of Rho-PEG-interferon-alpha-2B, a longer-acting formulation that is administered every two weeks. It received FDA approval in 2021 and previously by the European Medicines Agency in 2019 for the treatment of adults with PV. The registrational data for the drug are derived from the 12-month PROUD-PV study and the 48-month Continuous-PV Extension study, which together provide a five-year snapshot of the comparative efficacy and safety of Rho-Peg interferon versus hydroxyurea. Instead of utilizing the previously mentioned traditional high-risk criteria, PROUD-PV allowed enrollment of patients without prior cytoreduction and in need of cytoreductive therapy, or if they were treated with hydroxyurea for less than three years and either lacked a complete response or were intolerant to that treatment. When last counts before discontinuation were carried forward, differences in the complete hematologic response remained statistically significant from month 24 through month 60 in favor of Rho peg interferon. In the fifth year of treatment, 82% and 63% of patients in the Rho-Peg interferon and hydroxyurea arms, respectively, demonstrated freedom from phlebotomy. Dynamics of molecular response that emerged in the first 24 months became more statistically significant with longer follow-up. The median JAK2V617F allele burden decreased over five years among Rho-Peg interferon-treated patients, whereas the opposite temporal trend occurred in the hydroxyurea control arm. Treatment was generally well tolerated, and discontinuations due to adverse events at a median follow up of 36 months were 4% for hydroxyurea and 8% for Rho PEG interferon alpha 2b. Rho PEG interferon has also been evaluated in low risk PV patients in a randomized phase 2 trial versus standard therapy with phlebotomy and low dose aspirin only. At 12 months, target hematocrit control and phlebotomy frequency were significantly improved with Rho-Peg interferon. Although the total number of adverse events were significantly higher with Rho-Peg interferon, a low rate of grade 3 or higher adverse events was recorded and was similar between the two arms. Given these positive results, it will be important to revisit whether improvement in these endpoints are sufficient to rethink the therapeutic approach to low-risk patients, in whom cytoreduction is generally not recommended. The JAK inhibitor ruxolitinib is another FDA-approved option for PV as second-line therapy. It is indicated for adult patients with PV who have had an inadequate response to or intolerance with hydroxyurea. In the randomized Phase III response trial, which included 222 phlebotomy-dependent PV patients with splenomegaly, The primary composite endpoint of hematocrit control and spleen volume reduction was achieved by 21% of ruxolitinib-treated patients and 1% of patients on standard therapy. Those results were corroborated in the randomized Phase 3b Response 2 trial, demonstrating hematocrit control in the majority of ruxolitinib-treated patients, this time in a population without splenomegaly. Despite the promising efficacy data for multiple treatment options, the thrombosis endpoint remains a challenge. Event rates are low, and even with extended follow-up, the absolute number of thrombosis events in both experimental and control arms of trials have typically ranged in the single digits. It therefore remains difficult to generate high-level evidence that a particular cytoreductive agent has an appreciable impact on thrombosis a primary contributor to morbidity and mortality in PV. An assessment gap also exists for evaluating longer-term PV endpoints, such as transformation to myelofibrosis or AML, as well as overall survival. It is not feasible or practical for all stakeholders, that is patients, physicians, and trial sponsors, to conduct 10- to 15-year randomized trials to get such answers. Instead, what's needed to fill this assessment gap is a combination of lower-level evidence from retrospective analyses, national registries, and large real-world observational PV cohorts, such as the REVEAL study, which has been discussed at recent ASH annual meetings. By assembling this data, a body of evidence can be built to characterize a specific therapy's impact on the natural history of a disease. This is akin to investigative journalism, Gottlieb wrote, where short of a smoking gun, multiple corroborating sources are required to build a narrative that, in the words of famed Watergate journalist Carl Bernstein, is the, quote, best obtainable version of the truth. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.